fasting yet again for the fast of Advent. You'll notice some peculiar things about the rites and rubrics of the church during Advent because there's been an evolution um, of how we did things. So in the early church, we fasted only for one day, which was the, the Baramun, the day before the feast. And then in Rome, actually, they were fasting for six weeks. So we decided we would join them. So that's how it became 43 days. Later on, we decided to allocate three for the miracle of the Mu'attam, but the, the origins are in, are in that. And because of that, the church used to only celebrate on the weekends of the month leading up to Advent, which is Kiyak, because the, the feast falls on the very end of our month, the Coptic month of Kiyak. And so that's why this is a strange fast in that the rites and rubrics don't change until two weeks from now, suddenly when we enter Kiyak, suddenly we change tunes, right? And suddenly we have the the seven and four sabarba, the special praises that we do. We change, um, they used to change the colors of the church and the whole mood changes. And then we change from Aktunk, or He has risen, on Sundays to Who has come, to remember the advent of our Lord. And we keep saying that all the way from uh, the Feast of the Nativity all the way until the Feast of the Resurrection. Right, so after that, you'll see that instead of wearing gold, I'll be wearing red because we go back to an annual um, tune. So that's what's going on right now. Our readings today are predominantly about one thing, and incidentally, with the Sinexar, it, it goes with it, which is suffering um, for the sake of the faith, which is not always a welcome message anymore. Um, many Christians today, we want the the hugging God, right? We want the we want the consolations. We want the the kumbaya. We want to be able to sit around and, and just hold hands, and just Jesus loves me, which is true. Jesus does love us, right? But we have sometimes an aversion to this other face that's very real in the gospel, which is you you need to endure. Right, you need to be able to fight. We're not we're not as comfortable talking about it, but it's necessary. Because Christianity, contrary to accusations against us, is not a religion for the weak. It's not a religion for the soft. It's not it's not a fluffy religion, to use the, the word from, from Arabic. It's a very difficult religion because it calls us to be on guard and battling all the time. There isn't a rest. The only rest that we're going to get is going to be at the very end, right? So we might get consolations during the war, but we're never not at war. There's never a time when we're not. And that's why the context of all these reading was one of persecutions. Um, and why St. Paul is exhorting them, saying, we boast about your patience, your faith, and all your persecutions. Because they're acknowledging that our context of Christianity is always has been and continues to be going against the grain, going against the popular ways of society. And Saint, um, I think it was Saint Peter, who is writing this epistle from prison, okay, he's not writing it from the comfort of his own home, he makes a comment at the beginning of what we read saying, for we have spent enough of our past time fulfilling the desires of non-believing people, we used to live in indecency, lust, excess drinking, orgies, riotous behavior, abominable idolatries. And, so he's saying that's what we all used to do before entering into the church. 
And then he says of those who are from the outside looking in, they think it's strange that you no longer run with them into the same abusive lifestyle and they speak evil of you. So this has always been the context, that when you do something completely different from what everyone else is doing, they're not going to be warmly and happily receiving you because you're contesting them. So in today's readings, we're, we're reading about how we're at war. All the details, all the, all the readings detail persecutions, persecutions from the world, whether it's social or physical, right? The Thessalonians that St. Paul is writing to were being killed by the Romans. That's why St. Paul was writing then to them to encourage them. Persecutions from other religions and denominations, right? The praxis is about Christians being persecuted by Jews, and sometimes from within the church itself, like St. John Chrysostom, right? Where there was a problem coming from even within the church. So that a person who's going right is always going to face obstacles. People aren't going to always be happy when, when they see it. And these same things exist for us today. Sometimes we're persecuted from without, right? In, in our North American context, often it's with ridicule that we believe in God still, of like we're as if we're juvenile, that we continue to believe in such things, right? Back home in Egypt or not even just in Egypt, but in many places in the world, it's from without. It'll be being murdered for their faith, whether it's in Egypt or Nigeria, right, or Indonesia, right, all sorts of countries where people are being killed for their faith. And sometimes within the church, if somebody stands up and says something's not right, sometimes they might also feel persecuted um, or isolated. So we're at war, whether we like it or not, and God is asking us, if we are going to come fight with him. This is what the gospel is about. So he's inviting us to discipleship. And we talked last year about what it means to be a disciple. But he tells us that we have to calculate the cost. He's like, I'm, I'm inviting you to be my disciple, but I'm asking you before you make your decision to calculate the cost and ask yourself if you're willing to do it or not. We often think of most relationships as though they're easy, but they're not. Ask most couples what their first couple of years of marriage looked like, and it rarely resembles what it looked like during the time when the couple was dating or courting or getting to know each other. The first two years are, are often miserable. <laughs> Kids dream of, of being race car drivers or basketball players or surgeons. They have all sorts of different dreams, and then they realize that it's, it's very expensive both literally and figuratively, <laughs> to get to those places. So our Lord, who knows all things, knows that following Him is not easy because the world that we live in is hostile to the truth. But He's not inviting us to, to drink tea, right? This is not the invitation of Christianity to have a, an adak, like a, a sitting where we just have uh, biscuits and, 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 and tea with milk. He's inviting us to fight in His army, and as a consequence, what he's asking us is not easy at all. And that's why he's, he's saying you need to calculate the cost. So what is the cost that, that he outlines um, in his teachings in this gospel? First, as he's saying, I come first. And he says it boldly. He says unhesitatingly. He doesn't say it with reservation. He's saying, me first which many of us might think is, is egocentric. He says, anyone who comes to me and does not disregard his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, and his own life also, 
cannot be my disciple. It's a very difficult saying, right? Many of us will look at that and be like, what does he mean? I'm not supposed to love my family. I'm not supposed to love them. He's saying, no, love me more. He's not saying don't love them. He's saying, love me more. What he's saying is choose, because we said love is a choice, choose me first. Is this unreasonable? No. He is the one who made everything, right? He is the reason why everything exists. In fact, everything only has a point because he exists and because he made it. If he didn't exist, there's no such thing as family. Families exist towards him, right? They don't self-exist. And so that's why he's saying that to forget me, to not choose me first, is to undo the meaning of your whole social construct. If I don't come first, then what you're doing actually has no meaning and no point anymore. So I have to come first. If you're forced to choose between righteousness, between truth, which is myself, I am the truth, and something else, I'm saying choose the truth. Right? Don't go with what you want. Principles need to be set. Sometimes there are family problems when a spouse defends a parent over a spouse. Right? Some, this is a very common problem. Right, where somebody chooses his own family or her own family over this spouse. And that in and of itself causes monumental issues within a household. Sometimes the spouse will show more loyalty and love and concern for his or her brothers and sisters over his spouse or over her spouse and over her kids. The result is that the rest of the family feels alienated. Right? So I'm saying is that even within our own construct of family, we already have this sense of what you choose can change the context of where, where you are. If a family is in financial stress, can one member take all the money and just go on vacation? That would be the person choosing himself over the family. And so that's why God is saying, choose me first. If it comes down to having to make a choice, the bias needs to go towards me. Think of a real war, because we're being called into war. And imagine if all the soldiers fighting decided that when push comes to shove, when things get very stressful, that their family comes first. It would mean that the principle they went to war for is not worth enough to die for, which means the war is useless, right? If everybody, the minute they're on the battlefield, says, I can't fight because I'd rather my family, which, which might be understandable, right? Then the war is done, right? Then whoever is attacking something is going to win because we just said we can't handle it. I'd rather be at home with my family. So he's not saying, again, don't love your family. He's saying, love the truth more. And if you love the truth more, you'll have a good family. The second cost that he gives, he's saying that if you want to come with me, that this is something I require from you, is carry your own weight. Whoever does not bear his own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. He's saying one of the costs here is that you pull your own weight. I remember one time my, my group of, of friends back home when we were camping, there was somebody who was relatively new to camping who was coming with us for the first time and was very new to the, the outdoors experience, which is, which is intense for us. It's not... American camping in a parking lot. Um, so people had <laughs> to row for him, 
Okay, he was sitting in the middle, like he was, like in the old days in, in North America during the fur trade, the kings or the dignitaries would never row in a canoe. They would be carried in and out of the canoe, they'd be put in the middle of the canoe, and everyone would, would, would row for them, and they wouldn't carry their bags ever. So this was identical to that situation. He didn't row, he would just sit there, right? He wouldn't carry his bags, they were too heavy for him, right? He wouldn't help carrying the canoes because they're dropped from lake to lake. Everybody had to take care of this person because they were, this person was unable to do, do so. And the rest were very annoyed. They weren't happily doing like, this favor. They were very frustrated because they felt that it was ruining their experience, right? It was ruining the fun that they wanted to have because they're going back and forth to help this person. The person was slowing the whole crew down, right? It was, it was preventing us from getting where we want to go sooner. So imagine then if you're at war, Okay, you're in a real war, and imagine if everyone is complaining about the weight of their backpack. Imagine if they're complaining about the role they have in battle. If all they do during the war is whine that they're swordsmen and they'd rather be a defender, that they're an archer and they'd rather be a swordsman, or that they don't like the weight of their helmet and they wish that they had designed it with something to release the sweat. If that's all you do during the battle... I don't suppose the battle will go very well for you, right? And on top of that, the people are going to get very irritated with one another. They're going to be distracted by one another. The goal of the battle will be forgotten because we're using our time and energy comparing loads or whining. But in saying carry your load, our Lord is also acknowledging that it is a load, right? He's saying that I, I know that it's a load. I'm not, I'm not shying away from that fact, that there is a struggle. So the cost that you're calculating is, are you willing to carry it, right? That there is a load that comes with this. Maybe your load is going to be that you're ridiculed at school. Maybe that's going to be your load, right? Maybe you're going to be ridiculed because you don't participate in certain cultural events. Maybe you're going to be ridiculed at work because you're not willing to bend the rules to get the, the success that they want, that you're not going to be able to get the, the, the targets that people want that might make you want to be dishonest to get there. Maybe you're going to be ridiculed because you have an opinion that's completely different from everybody else's. This is part of the invitation that our God is asking, of saying, can you carry that? Are you willing to carry that? Yes, it is a load, right? And, and, and I know that it's a load. I know that it's difficult, but are you willing to carry it. The third cost is money. Our Lord is saying, save enough money to build. He says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. So what he's saying is, you have to plan ahead. You can't be, you can't be reactive. The money that you're saving is to build not just the foundation, but the whole building. Otherwise, as he says, when, you, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, everyone who sees would begin to mock him, saying, this man begins to build and he was not able to finish. Right? You didn't budget. Right? So suddenly you look like a fool. You have this gigantic foundation laid for you, this mansion that you've been showing off that you're going to build, and suddenly you can't finish it. So now, instead of a testimony to the greatness of your project, there's a testimony a monumental testimony to how much of a fool you are in the eyes of the people. Saving money isn't easy. It requires getting advice. It requires being a little stingy on some things. 
It means saying no to yourself for things that are more of a luxury than a necessity. It means being able to say no to yourself. It's like someone who goes to run a long marathon. You'll usually find that they don't start off sprinting. If they do, then they expend all their energy at the beginning, and then they don't have enough stamina to carry it to the end, to be at the front of the race. Sometimes people, when new in the faith, are also that kind of zealous, right? That's why he's saying calculate it. Calculate it hard because it's not a day or two that we're talking about. So are you saving enough money? Some people, when they're new to faith or they're new, they have a renewed spiritual life, they go hardcore, right? I'm going to do 400 matanyas. I'm going to read every hour of the Igbeya. I'm going to read every single psalm in existence. I'm going to do Jesus' prayer 24-7. I'm going to give all my money. I'm going to do, I'm going to do, I'm going to do. And they do it for like a week. And then they're exhausted. And then they can't do it. And then they don't do anything. <laughs> then there's zero that's left over. Why? Because they didn't calculate it right, right? They didn't get any kind of advice on how to save. They didn't think about what this is going to look like in a year. They didn't think about all of these little parts that are part of the planning, that are part of the budgeting, and they thought, I can do this all at once. These people look foolish to their friends, right? Imagine if you tell your friends, oh, I don't do this or that, right? Or the other thing that you consider wrong. And then out of nowhere... You have a temptation that you didn't see coming, and so you fall. Then your friends who are impressed by you at first are suddenly mocking you for not being able to stay true to your word. Whereas like, oh, I thought you were like doing the whole Christian thing, right? But because you were loud, you were vocal, you didn't, you didn't calculate. You need to know this faith. You need to know what it entails if you're going to enter it, right? This is why, in particular, the church is writing this because it was adults that were coming, of saying, no what you're getting into, right? This isn't an easy thing that you're getting into. The same is true in war. You need to find out, do I have the discipline needed for the training to fight well? Do I have the stores of zeal needed to fight this fight? I need to ask myself those questions. The fourth thing is you have to train and study well enough to understand the war. Our Lord says, or what king, as he goes to encounter another king in a war, will not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 troops to meet the one who comes against him with 20,000 troops. If he can't, while the other king is still far away, he'll send a peace treaty. In the same way, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So this analogy that our Lord gives has a lot of assumptions in it. The general here knows his army. Okay, This person who's commanding the army has to know his army. There's something that's being assumed. What they can handle or what they cannot handle. There are some armies that with way less men might with their might and strategic wit be able to take down a massive army. There are others that need too many resources to maintain a long war and thus are forced to withdraw. In the Battle of, of New York Harbor, for example, the Americans did this um, with the British. Right? They were, the Americans were, were outgunned and outmanned, but they were victorious through strategy, right? is that they, they drew out the resources. I was on the British side, but the analogy also means, right, that you are skilled in knowing how the enemy works, right? You need to know how the enemy works. If you don't know how the enemy works, it's hard for you to make a good assessment of whether you can handle it or not, right? You need to know the strategy and what do people do so that you are able to plan effectively. And this is true in our spiritual battle. It's expensive. The cost here is that you need to study. You need to be up to date about your status as a soldier, 
about the morale of the rest of the battalion with which you are fighting. And someone on the team better be briefing everyone else on how the enemy works so that we're successful in winning the war. So many Christians today are not in a good place because they either don't believe in or underestimate the work that the devil does in fighting us. We have volumes of works from the Desert Fathers specifically on all of this because they went out to the front line of battle to learn the tactics of the enemy and report back to us on what the, what the enemy does to snare us. This requires discipleship. If you're going to join the battle, you need to attach yourself to an instructor. You should read books on war. You should get other people's advice. You should go to the experts. Right? If you're going to be a valiant fighter, then this is what you need. Finally, the fifth cost is know your place in the war. And that is how you will save yourself and the rest of the battalion that you're fighting with. St. Peter said, above all things in today's epistle, be committed to your mutual love, for love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve each other as good stewards of the grace of God in its various forms. Is to find out what is your role in this army. Right? It's not going to be the same for everybody. Some people, like we said, are, are, are defensemen. Some people are archers. Some people have their swords. Some people are spies. Right? We have different, different roles. But if I see my role as being for the success of the whole campaign, and if I care about the whole campaign as much as I care about myself, at the very least, then I will fight valiantly and we will we'll have success because I'm giving myself for the team. So those are the costs. But thankfully, we have a general who paid his dues and more, right? We're not talking about a, a person leading the army who is completely oblivious to what it means to cost. As we read in the praxis, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree, right? So he's somebody who didn't shy away from the suffering, who doesn't know what it is that he's asking us to do because he did it and more. He did it and more, and it wasn't even his fault. These are the costs, but the reward will be victory. The part that people forget, though, is that we're only at war because of ourselves. We weren't created from non-existence into a state of war, right? We weren't created at, in, in spiritual battle. We led ourselves to war by straying from the design and purpose and by choosing everything but that purpose above God. We are here in this state because we loved ourselves more than God, which was the opposite of what he asked, and we created division as a result. But here we have a general that we fought against, right? We rebelled against, who is saying, I know your weaknesses and I know your flaws, but if you are willing, I will redeem you and I will deliver you and I will fight your war on behalf of you and with you. If you follow me, I will give you victory. And know that, and he promises, so all of those costs, but he says, but, I'm asking you to choose me first, but there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come 
eternal life. Saying, I will give you these things that you want. I will give you the things that you want. I will give you the things that you need. Choose me first. Try me. You're going to suffer, but you're going to have all of that both here and in the age to come. Fight for the truth, and the reward will be in and through the battle. To him be the glory forever and ever, now and always, at the age of all ages. Amen.